Well, there's only one way to freedom. One way to truly be free, isn't there? One way to be free from sin and bondage. Free from the shackles of fear. There's only one way to be free from the enslavement of legalism, empty religion, and empty spirituality. There's only one way to freedom from the lies of self-enlightenment and self-actualization, which are so prevalent in the postmodern view that has become common in our culture, a culture that now encourages this, it's all about me thinking all the time. You see, every one of these ways of looking at life, every one of these ways of living, sin, bondage, fear, legalism, dead religion, meaningless spirituality, self-enlightenment, self-actualization, they all end up putting the focus on the same thing, on me. And they're all holes in the ground that imprison us to keep us focused on ourselves. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. There's only one way to freedom, of course, and that's through Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. It's Jesus' enlightenment. It's Jesus' actualization. It's about finding ourselves in Jesus Christ. We're continuing our series today on the journey. And we're going to talk about freedom as we work our way through the narrative, the story of Moses and the book of Exodus. Next week we have a very special Sunday coming as we're going to pause this series, by the way, and hear from one of my pastors. He's a very close friend and a mentor in my life, Pastor Paul McDonald. McDonald. Pastor Paul and his wife Cindy are going to be here visiting, and I've asked him to preach on Sunday. So please, if you would, please consider coming back next week as they're coming a long way, all the way from Missouri, to speak to us and to speak into this church and into this ministry. And I promise you, if you come, you will not be disappointed, okay? So that's next Sunday. But for today, we're going to continue on in our journey through Exodus. So let's turn, if you have your Bibles, and I think we'll have it up on the screen, to where we left off last week in Exodus chapter 6 with verse 2. And as we turn... They're just to set the stage for today. Last week we talked about brokenness and the fact that Moses was a very broken man and we saw that God had led him back to the very place of his deepest hurt, into Pharaoh's court, and what was to be the greatest display of God's strength through Moses that his people had ever seen. And at this point, where we left off last week, Moses has just made his first attempt to persuade Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go. And he's not only been shut down by Pharaoh, but he's been rebuked by his own people. And so here he is, hurting, you know, rejected, feeling very isolated. And then God speaks to him in a very personal and a very intimate way. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Okay, God is indicating to Moses here that this relationship is very special and very unique in the fact that even though he appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, he did not reveal himself to them by his covenant name, the Lord, which is literally translated from the Hebrew as Yahweh 
or Jehovah. And so sacred was the name of Yahweh, this personal name to the ancient Hebrews, that sometime around 300 BC, they decided it was too holy and sacred a name to even say out loud. So they forbade speaking it. And it was only written after that. Okay? This is a very personal introduction. In other words, God has revealed himself here to Moses in a much deeper way than ever before by revealing the covenantal significance of his name Yahweh to Moses and by promising Moses that I will be with you in chapter 3 verse 12, which we talked about last week. This is God reassuring Moses, who's struggling with totally trusting him throughout this process of dealing with Pharaoh, that he, Yahweh, will be with Moses every step of the way. I can relate to this, as I'm sure many of you can. I know that it was God who called us to this work. I know that it was God who has brought us this far. And I know that it is God who has promised to complete the good work that he's begun in us. But at times, I still struggle with totally trusting him in all things. All the time. There are moments where I wonder and I worry and I fret. You know, God, are you, are you going to take care of this? This need? This situation? This problem? And so often as I pray, he simply reminds me that he is Yahweh. The God who has made a covenant with me and he's written it on my heart, which has been accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit who now lives in me. That is the greatest reassurance that we could ever have and that's the reassurance that he's giving Moses here in the story. I'm a personal God who's with you always, okay? So let's continue verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, again, Yahweh, your God. He's making it very clear now. This is personal. Who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. One more time. That's Yahweh. So God is making it abundantly clear here. That he is in covenant with his people. And that he's not only God Almighty, the all-powerful ruler, but he's also an intimately personal God who loves them very much. So much so that he refers to himself in these six verses as Yahweh, this personal covenantal God, three separate times. And how did God, I mean, how did the people respond here then? Okay? Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, verse 9, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They didn't listen because they were broken. They hadn't reached the place where they were willing to allow God access to their brokenness and consequently they shut him out. We talked about this last week, so we won't go back through it, but we do the same thing in our lives, don't we? As Moses did. So everyone involved here in the story was dealing with the same issues of brokenness and lack of trust, but fortunately for them, God was just getting started, okay? Now, before we continue in our text, there's something else that needs to be pointed out here. Uh, 
There are seven promises that God makes to his people through Moses in verses four through eight. He says, number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Number five, I will be your God. Number six, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And number seven, I will give it to you for a possession. These are seven promises directly from God to his people, and they all hinge on God setting them free, which he's already promised to do in chapter 3, verse 16. That promise to set the Israelites free and the subsequent blessings that come with it aren't simply a gesture of kindness by God or some kind of standalone act of benevolence because he feels bad for the Hebrew people. The promise of freedom and the seven promises of blessing that follow it are in fact a part of God's covenant with his people. So, so what does that mean for us? What it means for us is that when we enter into a covenant relationship with Christ, that is to say when you place your faith in, in Jesus Christ and you become born again, You've now entered into a covenant relationship with him. When you do that, you're now the beneficiary of all of the promises that go along with that covenant. And the promises that come with the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ are the same as the promises that the Father gave to his people in Exodus. You see, just as it was for the Hebrew people, so it is with us. Your freedom is a part of his covenant promise along with these seven other subsequent blessings or promises. So let's look at this just a little closer. First of all, and I'm sure you already know this, but just to be thorough, we are promised freedom in Christ. John 8, 31 and 32 says, So, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is the truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. He will set us free. Clearly, we know that we have freedom available to us in Christ Jesus. And out of that comes these seven other promises or blessings. So I just want to quickly look at each of these to clarify, okay? Promise number one to the Hebrews that we just went over. I will bring you out from your burdens. That's in verse 6 of our text in Exodus that we just read. <clears throat> now, let's look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Jesus said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, when we enter into this covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, he carries our burdens. Promise number two, I will deliver you from slavery, which is also in verse six. Now, John 8, 34 and 35, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, what? You will be free indeed. Jesus delivers us from slavery to sin. Okay, promise number three in verse six to the Hebrews. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Okay, let's read Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, which, by the way, was the greatest act of judgment of all time, right? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ as a part of his new covenant with us. Promise number four to the Hebrews, which is in verse seven. I will take you to be my people. Okay? John 17, 6 through 10. This is part of Jesus' prayer to the Father concerning his followers, concerning us. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Under the new covenant and our new freedom, we belong to Christ. We're his people. Promise number five to the Hebrews, I will be your God. Let's read Romans 10, 9 through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. We belong to God. And something really cool about this passage, the word Lord here in the ancient Greek is kurios, which literally means he to whom a person belongs. Okay? So under the new covenant and our new found freedom in Christ, we belong to God. Again, Romans 8, 14 and 15, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay? Not only are these promises all valid for us today as we're going through this, but you can see how they all relate to freedom in Christ. Promise number six to the Hebrews, which is in verse eight. I will bring you into the land. Let's read John 14, one through three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And again in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, just as the each ancient Hebrews were promised this inheritance, we're also promised an inheritance for eternity. And then finally, promise number seven, also in verse eight. And I will give it to you for a possession. Okay, let's read Revelation 21, one through six. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. That's good news. The new heaven and new earth, eternal life, our final dwelling place for eternity with the Father, these we will possess forever with him. All of these promises, these blessings are available to us as a part of the freedom that we have when we enter in to covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. So why in the world would we ever sell ourselves back into slavery? Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We're free in Christ Jesus. And yet, despite all these blessings that come with our freedom, sometimes we sell ourselves back into slavery and bondage, don't we? Well, you know, old habits, dead religion, faithlessness, fear. We, we forget who we are. The redeemed sons and daughters of God. Sometimes, despite all that he's done for us, we give in to our, own, our old ways. And the Israelites were doing the same thing. And we'll see that even more in the coming weeks. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm. That's the key. And often that's the hardest thing to do. When we're serving God, and as we continue here, we'll see that it was a big part of what was required of Moses. Standing firm. Okay? So let's pick back up in our text in chapter 6, verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Moses is really struggling here with the idea of standing firm. He says, I am of uncircumcised lips. In other words, I'm unfit. I'm unclean and I'm unworthy of the task. It's probably also a veiled reference to what happened on the way back to Egypt with his son Gershom. Remember we talked about that. Moses is saying, look, if I was unfit for the job because my son was uncircumcised, how much worse is it that I can't even speak? Pharaoh has already said no and warned me to drop the whole plan and my own people have rejected me. That's Moses looking at God. I'm of un uncircumcised lips. In the face of his initial failure and everything that is stacked against him now, Moses is beginning to waver in the face of God. Right after this, in our story, there's a genealogy for Moses and Aaron listed. We don't really have time to read through that today. And at first glance, this seems like one of those random passages inserted into the middle of a story, and it sort of seems out of place. But there are probably at least a couple of different motivations for placing a genealogy here in the middle of the narrative, okay? First, not only was it common, but also very important in ancient 
Hebraic writings to establish these genealogies for the purpose of authenticating the authors and the characters and the stories. But secondly, as most scholars concur that the book of Exodus was written by Moses, it makes perfect sense, if you think about it, to establish exactly who he was at this point and who Aaron was at this point in the story. Today, pretty much everyone knows who Moses of the Bible was, right? He's world famous. He's like Charlton Heston. I mean, Right? I mean, <clears throat> he looks like him. Everybody knows who Moses is. But at this point in history, Moses had just been living in relative obscurity in Midian for 40 years. Nobody knew who he was. Furthermore, most everyone that he hung out with in Pharaoh's court in the first 40 years of his life, including the Pharaoh of Moses' time, they were gone. This is a different Pharaoh we're dealing with now. Okay, So it was important to firmly establish exactly who Moses and Aaron were to any potential future readers of the book. And Moses surely knew that as he was sitting down to record these events sometime later. Okay, So we're going to skip that now and, and pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And just before we go to verse 5, let me just say... We talk about God being the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all through the New Testament, we see promises from Christ about our suffering, about hardship, about struggle, don't we? I mean, he says, look, you're going to struggle in this life. It's a fact. At times, it's going to be hard. Everything won't come easy. It's a promise. But in the end, there's so much promise of victory and deliverance and healing and peace and joy and love and fulfillment. The Old Testament's the same way. Listen to what God is saying to Moses. Look, you're going to go over here and you're going to talk to him again. And by the way, it isn't going to work out. He's going to say no and he's going to reject you. See, God is telling him, this is going to be tough. But in the end, I will deliver you. In the end, you win. In the end, there's fulfillment. There's promise. We need to cling to that in life, don't we? Things are going to get tough. They just are. But in the end, if you stand firm, we have ultimate fulfillment. Peace, joy, love. He promises all of that. Okay, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Here's the promise. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Verse 5 is a key verse here. <clears throat> the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You see, when, when we begin to walk in the freedom afforded to us in Christ Jesus... The world will see the change in us. And that change, that freedom, testifies to the nature and power of God who sets us free from slavery. In other words, your freedom is a testimony to others. That's one of the reasons that it's so important 
that we don't submit ourselves back to the yoke of slavery. It not only weakens our relationship with Christ, but it also weakens our testimony about Christ. The true freedom that we enjoy as Christians should testify to the world that there's only one true God because we're the only people on earth truly walking in freedom. When God delivered the Israelites, they quickly became known. And more importantly, their God became well known to the most powerful nation on earth at the time and soon to the other nations as, as the God above all gods. And he was about to prove this definitively to the Egyptians over the next five and a half or six chapters or so through the plagues and ultimately the Passover. But the freeing of the Hebrew people testifies clearly to the world about God and his people. Our lives today should testify to the world about God and his people. It's the same thing. I'm sure you've heard the now famous quote, it's most often, most often attributed to St. Francis that says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. Our lives should scream freedom in Jesus Christ to the world without saying a word. That requires walking in the freedom afforded to us in Christ and standing firm when the heat gets turned up. That will get God noticed in your life. And then when people around you face trials of their own, they'll often be drawn to you because they see the strength of the Holy Spirit in you even though they don't recognize Him. And that's okay because you'll then have an opportunity to introduce them to the God that you serve. Okay? Let your freedom be a testimony to others. Thirdly, and again, we don't have time to read all of this, but a great lesson that we can take away from the plagues and the Passover is that nothing can stand in the way of your freedom except you. God shows himself in these chapters to be far mightier than any of the Egyptian gods. You see, these plagues weren't just random afflictions of God to torture the Egyptians. Each plague, in fact, addressed a very specific or specific uh, god or gods, Egyptian god or gods, and each one was defeated by the god of the Hebrews. Each plague addressed a specific god of the Egyptians. It's the same god we serve today. I used to wonder since God certainly knew that Pharaoh wouldn't relent until the Passover. He knew that is what was going to happen. The, the Passover, the taking of each firstborn of the Egyptians. Why go to all the trouble of the first nine plagues? Why the big song and dance? Why, why put Moses and Aaron and even the Israelites through all the stress and the back and forth of Pharaoh changing his mind? Why not just go straight to the Passover and get it over with? The answer is because God was making a point. And he was going to drive it home so there was no doubt in anyone's mind, including the Israelites and Moses and Aaron, about who was really in control. And there's some great studies on this, by the way, that are available. But we're just going to point to some of these this morning so that you understand better what God was doing, okay? The Egyptians, like many pagan cultures of the time, worshipped a wide variety of nature gods, all right? They were, they were pantheists and polytheistic. They had all these gods and they attributed 
to their God's powers, all of the natural phenomena that, that they saw in the world around them. There was a God of the sun and a God of the river and a, a God of childbirth and a God of the crops and so on. And events like the annual flooding of the Nile, which fertilized their croplands, were to the Egyptians evidences of their God's powers and goodwill. So when Moses first approached Pharaoh, demanding that he let the people go, Pharaoh responded by saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I did not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Exodus 5.2. And so began the challenge to show whose God was more powerful. So now let's, let's run through these plagues quickly and just talk about some of the Egyptian gods being addressed here. The first plague, turning the Nile River to blood, was a judgment against Apis, the god of the Nile, and Isis, the goddess of the Nile, and Num, guardian of the Nile. The Egyptians also believed that the Nile was, to, was the bloodstream of Osiris, who was supposedly reborn each year when the river flooded. And the Nile also formed the basis for everyday life and the national economy. So this plague completely devastates the river as millions of fish die and the water is unusable. And then Pharaoh was told, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 7, 17. The second plague, which brought frogs from the Nile, was a judgment against Heket, the frog-headed goddess of birth. She must have been beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're going to make up a god... Frogs were thought to be sacred and were not to be killed. So God had the frogs invade every part of the homes of the Egyptians. These, these beautiful gods of, of the Nile, right? They invaded the homes. Every, every bit of the house, every corner was filled with frogs. And then when they died, their stinking bodies were heaped up in piles all over Egypt. Exodus 8, 13, and 14. And, and just an interesting side note here. After the first plague, the, the, the Nile turning to blood in chapter 7 says that Pharaoh did not even take this to heart because his, his, his magicians replicated the event. So he wasn't a bit worried. But after this second plague, his magicians also replicated the frog infestation. But it's interesting that Pharaoh pleads with Moses and Aaron to take the frogs away. Why not just ask his magicians to do it, right? Pharaoh was beginning to get a bit nervous here. And we see this steadily progress throughout the plagues. The third plague, the gnats, was a judgment on Set, the god of the desert. Unlike the previous plagues, the magicians now were unable to duplicate this one. And so now his own magicians declare to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Exodus 8.19. They're all getting a bit nervous. The fourth plague, the flies, was a judgment on either Ray or Uachit, who are both depicted as flies. And in this plague, God clearly begins to make a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians as no swarms of flies bothered any of the areas where the Israelites lived. Exodus 8, 21 through 24. The fifth plague, the death of the livestock, was a judgment on the goddess of Hathor and the god Apis, who were both depicted as cattle. As with the previous plague, God protected his people. While the cattle of all the Egyptians died, God was now steadily and systematically destroying the economy of Egypt, while at the same time, he's showing his ability to protect and provide for those who obeyed him, his own people. So Pharaoh now sends these investigators to see what's happening to the Israelites, Exodus 9-7, to see if they were suffering along with the Egyptians, and of course they weren't. And the result, again, was a hardening of Pharaoh's heart against God. The sixth plague, the boils that broke out, 
was a judgment against several gods over health and disease, including Sekhmet, Sunu, and Isis. And this time, the Bible says that the magicians could not even stand before Moses because of the boils. Clearly, these false religious leaders were completely powerless against the God of Israel. The seventh plague, the hail, attacked Newt, the sky goddess, Osiris, the crop fertility god, and Set, the storm god. And this hail was like nothing they'd ever seen before. And thunder and fire came down from the sky. And everything left out in the open was wiped out by it. But again, the Hebrews are miraculously protected. And none of the hail or fire damaged anything in their portion of land. Plague number eight was locusts, which was also an attack on Newt and Osiris and Set because the later crops of wheat and rye had survived the previous plague of hail, you know? Pharaoh wasn't worried. Hey, I got more food coming later. So God just waits till that comes up and takes it out also. Now everything has been wiped out by these swarms of locusts. So now there will be no harvest in Egypt that year at all. The ninth plague, which was three days of utter darkness, was focused on Ray, the sun god, who was also symbolized by Pharaoh himself. For three days, the land of Egypt was shrouded in a completely unnatural, pitch-black darkness. But the Israelites' home turf was bathed in light. Okay, and then the tenth and final plague, the Passover, which was, of course, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, was a judgment on Isis, the protector of children. And in this plague, God is now teaching the Israelites a deep spiritual lesson, which ultimately points to Christ. Because unlike the other plagues which the Israelites survived by virtue of their identity as God's people, this plague required an act of faith by the Israelites. They had to do something. God commanded each family to take an unblemished male lamb and kill it. The blood was to be smeared on the top and the sides of the doorways, and the lamb was to be roasted and eaten at night. Any family that did not follow God's instructions would suffer the last plague just as the Egyptians God described how he would send the death angel through the land of Egypt with orders to slay the firstborn male in every household, whether human or animal. The only protection was the blood of the lamb on the door. When the angel saw the blood, he would pass over the house and leave it untouched. Exodus 12:23. Of course, this is where we get the term Passover. It's where it comes from, and it's a memorial of that night in ancient Egypt when God delivered his people from bondage. By the time the Israelites left Egypt, they had a very clear picture of God's power and his protection and his plan for them to be free. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8 says that Jesus became our Passover when he died to deliver us from the bondage of sin. And just as it was with the Israelites, it is his plan for us to walk in freedom. And the only person that can keep you from being free is you. There's no other power. There's no other person. There's no set of circumstances. There's no problem that can keep us from the love and power and freedom that is promised to us in Christ when we believe in him and when we follow him. So listen, whatever mountain is in your life right now, whatever bondage, whatever hurt, you know, whatever power of hell that might come against you, none of it is any match for the one true God. Yahweh, the God who saves us and frees us from all bondage. But Pastor Rob, I, I've been, you know, through a lot. I'm really tired. I'm weary. I'm so weak. You know what? It's okay. 
the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Romans 8, 26. But I've struggled for so long, I'm not even sure I know how to pray anymore. It's okay. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Also, Romans 8, 26. Uh, uh, people don't understand what I'm dealing with, though. I feel alone. It's okay. Because you're not alone. And he who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 27. But there's so much uncertainty. I have no peace. It's okay. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. He has you well in hand. And he has the best for you, whatever that is, in store for you in the end. But it may require something on your part. The Hebrews had to be obedient to God's word regarding the Passover. They couldn't just sit idly and expect to be delivered out of their bondage. God required them to participate in the process. You see, we all want freedom in our lives. We all want deliverance from our troubles. But sometimes I think we'd prefer it if God would just handle it. I know I would. So we pray about our struggles and then we wait to see if he's going to take care of things. But so often, in fact, more often than not in scripture, what we see is that the people of God are required to be a part of the solution if they are to experience freedom, okay? Experiencing freedom requires your involvement. And this was certainly the case with Moses. We can't generally just sit back after praying a really sincere prayer. And then hope that God will miraculously work everything out for us. And, and don't get me wrong. He will always intervene. And sometimes supernaturally, miraculously act on our behalf. Absolutely. But he almost always requires involvement on our part before he brings the final outcome. We have to be a part of the solution. God didn't tell Moses to sit down by the burning bush. And you know, in a few weeks time... The Israelites will show up after being led out of Egypt by me and then you can just take it from there. Of course not. Moses had to go to Egypt. He had to confront Pharaoh. He had to deal with failed attempts, threats from the king, rejection from the very people he was trying to save and all the while carrying out very specific actions as commanded by God. Moses, go here. See this person. Say these words. Put your staff here. Say this to my people and on and on. Moses wasn't permitted to just hang out and wait for God to act. He had to be an active part of the solution, as did the Israelites. And sometimes, that can mean very difficult things. Sometimes dangerous things. Uncertainty. Hardship. But the reward is our freedom. Each time Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, they were risking their lives. Pharaoh could have ordered them to be struck down at any moment. And as Pharaoh ordered a heavier burden of work on the Israelites, Moses quickly fell out of favor with his own people. He wasn't winning any popularity contests. The requirement for Moses to be a part of this process, a part of the solution, was very arduous and dangerous. And it was a thankless job. But the result was freedom because he obeyed God. He submitted to the Lord's plan, no matter the difficulty, and he saw it through to the end. 
Okay, now then, and we're going to close. Let's finish our portion of the text for today. Exodus 12. And we'll read verses 40 and 42. 40 through 42. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. Finally, after all those years, all of the suffering, all of the grief, all of their hardship, the people of God were finally free. He makes all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, if you're a believer today, you've been called according to his purpose. Freedom and all of its blessings are promised to you by the covenant that Jesus Christ made with us. And that freedom can be an unbelievably powerful testimony to the world. And the only one that can keep you from it is you. But it might require, in fact, it most certainly will require you to go on a journey. At times, it's going to be hard. It will probably test your faith at one point or another. It might even be dangerous. Ask some of our missionaries in Egypt right now. But really, what's the alternative? Stay in Egypt, where it's predictable. Stay in Midian, where it's comfortable. And live out our lives in mediocrity. No, thank you. I'll take the hard road. It's easy to spot, by the way. It's the one that's less traveled. That's the journey that I'm on. Will you come with me? Let's do this together. Let's sell out and run this race till we have nothing left. Let's make it a point to take time out of our schedule and talk to our neighbors. Let's make some relationships outside of our circles. Let's bring people to church with us. Tell them about Jesus. Let's lead them to him. Let's, let's baptize them and disciple them and invite them on this journey with us so there's more of us every time we go out in freedom and shine the light of Christ to this world. That's the journey that I'm on. And there's no one else I'd rather take this journey with than you. Let's pray.